This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. TraumaCast. I'm very excited about the topic today, and in fact, uh, this is kind of a mini fellowship reunion. Uh, our, my guest today and I, all uh, several of us, did the trauma fellowship together, so this should be pretty fun. Uh, joining us today to discuss uh, the paper, which was titled uh, "Cadaveric Comparison of the Optimal Site for Needle Decompression of Tension Pneumothorax by Pre-Hospital Care Providers," was published in the October uh, issue of the Journal of Trauma and was reviewed in the October issue of the East Literature Review. Uh, joining us to discuss it today are uh, first uh, Dr. Dan Graveau, who was uh, one of the authors of the, of the paper and was really kind of the genesis of the idea, and also uh, Travis Polk, who was the East reviewer. So, Dan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first for those who may not know you? Uh, thanks, Dave, and uh, good to be on this with you, Travis and Matt. Um, so, uh, Dan Graveau, I'm one of the uh, instructors at the Navy Trauma Training Center out here in Los Angeles at L.A. County. Uh, so this is a great job. I've been here for about five years of uh, working with uh, some great in, uh, instrumental leaders in the trauma world with Dr. Dimitriades, Dr. Inaba, who is the pretty much the lead uh, uh, investigator on this paper, and as well as a series of studies we put out through uh, L.A. County and had a, been having a great time out here at L.A. with uh, Navy Trauma. Okay, thanks. And uh, Travis, you want to tell us about yourself as well? Sure. Uh, Travis Polk. Uh, I'm a surgeon at Portsmouth Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia, um, and uh, I have a lab that invest, also investigates uh, alternative devices uh, for tension pneumothorax, uh, and I'll be actually going out to take Dan's place in L.A. at the Navy Trauma Training Center in a couple months. Great. It's, uh, it turns out it's a pretty small world in the trauma community, especially if you're military, which I think I'm the only one on the call today who's not military, so I'm going to hang my head in shame a little bit. Um, also joining us, as always, is uh, Dr. Matt Martin, my uh, fellow moderator. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Oh, sure. Great to be here, and uh, happy to be on with two Navy guys. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Travis, why don't you go ahead, if you wouldn't mind, just summarizing the paper for us and the kind of key findings and uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, why you included it in the East Review. Sure. So we, um, starting in October of this year, we decided to include some military papers with each of the quarterly trauma reviews. And so as the first uh, month of doing this, I thought that this paper was really a, a good choice for that um, because not only is it, a, is it a topic that is extremely relevant both to the military and civilian uh, communities, uh, but the, it's a product of one of the Department of Defense's um, key trauma training sites at, at L.A. County uh, Hospital uh, where the Navy uh, sends surgical teams uh, to uh, learn trauma and refresh their trauma skills prior to deployment. And this uh, this paper uh, was a product of the Navy Trauma Training Center in L.A. County um, as a collaborative effort. And so I, I think it was the perfect paper to, to start this initiative with. 
essentially, uh, this paper looked at a comparison of the traditional uh, site of decompression for tension pneumothorax at the second intercostal uh, midclavicular line and compared that to the alternative site that is gaining uh, significantly more traction over recent years of using essentially the same place that we place a chest tube in the fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line. And in order to conduct the study, they used fresh cadavers and they instructed um, several Navy corpsmen who were attending the trauma training course in, uh, in how to appropriately place these catheters. And then they compared their placement both in terms of, of accuracy of placement and then their comfort level in placing the catheters at the two different sites. And the findings were, were pretty remarkable in that not only was their accuracy in placing the catheters better by a magnitude of, of up to two centimeters at the axillary location, uh, but also their comfort level was profoundly different, um, and, they, and these providers, only a few of whom had actually placed the device in a live patient, were much more comfortable placing it in the axillary position. And so for those reasons, I thought it was an important paper to share. Um, I think it's, it's just one of many of the papers out there that are leading us to shift um, to the axillary location. Um, as an alternative or even the primary site for tension pneumothorax decompression. And Dan, so tell me, uh, for those who may not be familiar, what's the experience level of the average Navy corpsman, and how does it compare to, say, a civilian pre-hospital provider? Are they, are they, can they be thought of in the same way, or, or how, how does that, how does that uh, compare? Yeah, a lot of times they can be thought of in the same way. Some of these are uh, young men and women who have. Uh, some civilian EMS experience, uh, whether on a volunteer base, basis or have had some prior work as a civilian EMT and then have decided to join the military. Or a lot of times, a uh, young uh, men and women straight out of high school or early-level early uh, college uh, training and then go into the military and then cycle out of the military and go back into the um in the EMT world, and so there's almost like a continuum of, uh, of great training and continued training and coming back and forth between the civilian and military where they uh, often go into reserves and uh, continue on their uh, military and civilian uh, career as uh, pre-hospital providers. They're on the average age of the early 20s, somewhere around 22, 23. Um, by the time we get them here in L.A., uh, they have a vast experience uh, or a range of experience, I should say, where some of them have had multiple deployments um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, they certainly have had training through uh, TCCC or Tactical Combat Casualty Care, where they've been instructed on these life-saving measures such as tourniquets, uh, field uh, airway management, and needle decompression. Um, and they practice this um, in field exercises and whatnot. Uh, and then a lot of them we have seen have come through here with uh, deployment experience, but then uh, their unit is being deployed again or have transitioned to a new unit, so they're, uh, you know, deploying with a different unit, and so they come back here for team training. Uh, so we have a, a wider range of people with uh, 
differing skills. Sometimes we get uh, trainees fresh out um, of uh, core school, we call it. So they've gone through basic training and have gone on to uh, become a Navy corpsman, uh, their initial schooling, and then they come here for some team training before they deploy. So a wide range of uh, experience, uh, some basic skills, um, and it translates very, very well to the civilian EMT world. And how, do, how does it compare to your, you know, the civilian trauma that you're seeing in L.A. County or, or in uh, Virginia, Travis? Uh, maybe we'll ask you, Dan, first. How, how does this, this skill set uh, compare in the civilian trauma that you also manage? Are you well, seeing this in your the, EMT, uh, in your pre-hospital providers, in your civilian practice? Sure, and I think that's why the Navy uh, chose to come here. The Army settled in in Miami, and the Air Force settled in a few spaces, um, Baltimore being the most prominent. Um, our job since the uh, early 2000s at, at these trauma training centers has been to bridge the gap between urban uh, trauma, um, gang warfare in certain, certain places, to bridge the gap between this urban warfare and um, uh, combat casualty care. So the patients that we see are gunshot wounds, penetrating wounds, uh, high-energy uh, blunt mechanisms that mirror some of the injury patterns that we see overseas when we take care of our, uh, our combat casualties. And these young men and women come through here um, with some good skills, uh, some good training, uh, but before they ever step foot on the battlefield and then take care of one of our uh, warriors, get the chance to, under a controlled environment with one of the instructors here or one of the cadre of uh, staff at L.A. County or Miami or Baltimore, uh, see it firsthand uh, with uh, with us at the bedside with them, taking them through it. And the uh, the trauma patterns are very, very similar. Uh, gunshot wounds to the chest, gunshot wounds to the abdomen, high-speed MVCs, uh, motorcycle crashes on the freeway with traumatic amputations that mirror uh, lower extremity amputations from blast injuries in the in the battlefield. So uh, it's not too uncommon to see a patient come in here with a uh, traumatic amputation, a tourniquet on, uh, come in here with neal decompressions placed in the field uh, by pre-hospital providers and they come in here with their uh, angiocatheters in their chest, and we quickly transition that out to a, a chest tube in the trauma bay. So uh, it's, it's very, very similar. It's, it's, it's a great place for our uh, military medics and Navy corpsmen to come here and train. So, so Dan and Travis, how, how big of a problem is tension pneumothorax and, and specifically inadequately decompressed tension pneumothorax? So the uh, the incidence of, of tension pneumothorax uh, in many ways is, is difficult to exactly define, uh, but it's estimated to be at somewhere between 1% and 5% across various populations between civilian, military, in-hospital, ICU patients. Uh, but it's also felt that it's, it's probably unrecognized in some situations where there's concomitant polytrauma and hypotension from other reasons, uh, and so, but it's at least one to five percent. Probably more important than that, though, is the extremely high failure rate of what we consider to be the standard treatment for it right now, which is the use of the 14-gauge 
uh, angiocatheter at the at the midclavicular line, and failure rates for that have been so have been reported to be as high as 65% in some series, uh, although it, although they're all over the place, and really they they kind of vary between about about 15 to 20 percent, and, and that that very high 65 percent failure rate, and so so I, I think that's the larger problem. While the incidence is very is relatively small, there is a real definable mortality and morbidity from this process, and our treatment that we that we teach people is extremely ineffective. Yeah, I, I echo that with Travis. I think the most important thing is is what maybe not the overall incidence of it, but of of the incidents, what is a preventable death from it? And we look back to the battlefield preventable death studies that we've learned over the past, you know, decade plus of war and uh anywhere from one to four percent of uh preventable deaths on the battlefield can be attributable to tension pneumothorax. Uh, that's not treated, and we think about what goes into uh, effectively treating attention pneumothorax, and certainly it's equipment and equipment failure, whether it's the equipment isn't a long enough needle, a large enough caliber, um, and probably more importantly, is it pre- placed properly? Is it adequate training, knowledge base of the uh, the person placing the needle? And that probably comes down to most of it. So, my question is, um, you know, I've heard the concern raised that if you if you make a push for this, you do this education, you, and you put these needles out into the hands of the pre-hospital providers, there's going to be a sudden uptick in the frequency of uh, tension pneumothoraces that need a decompression in the field. Um, have you guys seen that in your own centers? I mean, uh, you know, the old joke is that uh, the only time you really see a life-threatening tension pneumothorax is in uh, ATLS, at least in uh, most civilian trauma centers. Um, but how does that how does that play out in maybe some of the more urban centers and 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 then in uh, military combat settings? So I th- I think in in some ways it's it's also a a product of if you don't think about it you won't find it and so um, I know I'm frequently disheartened when I have a traumatic arrest patient come in um, that hasn't had his chest decompressed in the field and. While not every time, occasionally when we do it in the trauma bay, we do find a significant pneumothorax. And so I agree with Dan that really education is a key component of this and incorporation into into appropriate protocols um, because I think the incidence is probably um, somewhat higher than, than what's been reported. Uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? My my thoughts would be is I have this, you know, unique opportunity to be here and stand in front of a bunch of these young men and women, young t- early 20s, and talk to them about this uh, as they prepare to go overseas. And uh, they have tons of questions. Um, you know, I'm trying to recognize this clinical entity, this tension pneumothorax, and I put up a list of clinical signs and symptoms, and it's a it's a laundry list of things. And I say focus in on these things. You know, uh, any type of chest injury, blunt, penetrating, doesn't matter. Your casualties in front of you is in respiratory distress. They're tachycardic. Can't really get a good blood pressure. You're not even trying to get a blood pressure, but their pulse is very tight because you're out in the field. 
any of, any of those conglomerate of symptoms or signs, you're thinking of it. And you decide you've got to place this needle. And that's why I'm here to teach you how and where to place this needle. And my advice to them, and I, I just hear these words echoing in my in my head, is no one's died of a needle decompression. There's no study that shows that. But what we do have is some pretty convincing evidence that if you don't have a tension pneumo decompressed, you're probably going to die. And that's what I leave them with. So we can quickly then refocus ourselves on the education at hand. Safely identify or rapidly identifying the place we need to place or the the location we need to place it, and I think that's what gets us back down to uh, the the jux of the matter is where do we need to place this needle and, and get back to uh, some good training. So you know, there, there's some pretty reasonable studies out there um, that kind of show us that you know and. Um, over a thousand trauma patients that had these needles placed, even where they landed medial to the midclavicular line into the area of the great vessels uh, and whatnot, there was no major injury. And that was only a few, maybe uh, seven, eight years ago by Netto uh, uh, in 2008. And, you know, relatively a large number of patients, not, not going to sway me away from him and Han and deciding not to place the needle decompression. I'm going to have them place the needle D and move along uh, to rapidly uh, get this uh, patient moved along the, the continuum of care. Yeah, and, and if you look at there's a couple papers from Vietnam on this, they have some great post-mortem chest X-rays of soldiers who came in dead showing massive tension pneumothoraces that were not decompressed in the field. So, so Dan, so I'm this, 25-year-old medic, which isn't a stretch for me since I'm only about 28. Um, so, so I've been trained to put it in the second intercostal space, midclavicular line. So, and I'm comfortable with that. So, why are you telling me to do it differently? What's the problem with that position? Um, that's a, that's a great point and a great question because uh, a lot of these young men and women come through here having already been trained. And I don't really argue with them too much. I, I just, you know, with the evidence that we've put through here from the radiographic studies that Kenji has done, uh, Kenji Anaba, and some of the cadaver studies that show that we're probably a little bit more likely to get it in the chest in the right spot if we go into the fifth interspace. If you are more comfortable putting it in the second interspace and can routinely do it, go for it. I'm not going to change that. Um, and I wouldn't change that for you. I think what this what this type of paper does and some of the other ones, it, it takes that person who may be a little bit unsure of themselves, uh, of the actual location. And I, I hearken back to something that Kenji and I have done over with uh, uh, looking at um, a study of about, about 25 ER physicians who were ATLS trained, and they could easily tell you where you need to place that uh, that needle. Uh, about 90% of them can correctly say you need to place it in the second interspace, uh, midclavicular line, uh, back when that was the, the only place to, to put it. But only about 60% uh, could actually go up to a mannequin or a model, actually, not a mannequin, a model, and point with, uh, with accuracy where that place was. Um, what this 
fifth interspace does, it certainly offers an alternative uh, that may be more familiar to certain people. Um, it might be easier for certain people to place it there. So it's certainly an alternative. So, again, if you're that 25-year-old uh, medic who is more comfortable placing it in the second interspace in the clavicular line and you have your way of doing it and you can repeatedly do it, go for it. I'm not going to change that. Uh, it's for the maybe for the person who is less experienced or has a, a question, this is certainly an alternative. So, but what do you think the advantage is if, if you're trying to you're trying to convince them that's a better spot? Is it just chest wall thickness? Is it a safer location? Well, what are the advantages of that? Um, I don't necessarily think it's, it has to be a, a conceived a safer location. I think in tension, you know, everything shifted over and. There's really been nothing that shows that there's any harm to going up or even missing the mark so much in the second interspace. Um, I think there's – it's just probably a little bit easier uh, to find it uh, in that spot. I think when you go up to the second interspace and you're unsure of yourself, um, you try and find the clavicle. You try and find the angle of the clavicle. Find that midclavicular line. A lot of young people don't realize that the clavicle is not a straight shot. It's not a straight bone that goes across from the uh, the sternum over to the shoulder. So they forget. They don't realize that it's a curved bone, and they have a hard time finding that midclavicular line. And that's where they're off, and that's where they hesitate and struggle. Um, but if you say go to that anterior axillary line, find and I treat I teach you this: find the nipple, go over find the mid-axillary line and go in, that to me is just triangulating it and go in a lot, a lot quicker. So I just think it's an easier space to go in the more novice candidate who's being trained. Yeah, and I would say, you know, one of my concerns is that over, over the past several years, we've heard a push to use longer and longer needles because of the studies that uh, uh, largely your group and other military groups have done to show that you know the the, the length of the needle oftentimes is insufficient to reach through the pectoral muscle, and yet you combine that longer needle with the high rate of placing the needle medial to the midclavicular line, and I have to imagine that they, there have been some uh, adverse events involved, and obviously they're just not going to get published. Nobody's going to publish a, a case series of their own, you know, pulmonary artery uh, injuries and things like that. So. Um, I, I, for me, if we're moving, making the push for longer needles, I think it makes a lot of a lot of sense to move into the uh, uh, to the axilla rather than the second clavicular uh, space. Travis, what do you think about that? So, so I, I think there's I think there's a, a few factors. I, I do somewhat disagree with Dan um, with regards to which location is is a better location. Um, the I think there is now Really, when you look at all of the literature that has come out, there is enough that we can say that that the two alternate the two locations are at least equivalent, and that perhaps the axillary location is better um, for for a few reasons. Most of the studies that have looked at chest wall thickness um, have shown that the chest wall is thinner. Um, and more reliable in that location, um, depending on different patients' body habitus, uh, whether it's extremely muscular wall, uh, chest walls, like we see sometimes in the military, or obesity, um, that axillary location tends to be a more reliable 
thickness. Uh, the other factor, though, is um, I agree with the safety. Um, I, I think that the the safe it may be a slightly safer location. Um, but I think the other factor is is something that we just recently looked at um, in our lab, and that was which is more likely to become dislodged uh, when we when we move casualties. And that's not something that's really been looked at in the past. And we recently did a study where we caused the pneumothorax with a with an insufflator and a cadaver, and then placed. Um, Place decompression devices at both the axillary and the uh, midclavicular uh, locations. We observed them coming in with um, with a thoracoscope, and then what we did was we log rolled the cadaver a few times. We moved the cadaver across the across the room on a military litter, log rolled them again, and then brought them back and looked back into the chest and measured how much the the devices had become dislodged. And the really remarkable thing is that at the midclavicular line, two-thirds of the devices became dislodged in that process, even with securing the devices with tape. Whereas at the axillary line, only about 17% became dislodged. And I think it has to do with anatomic variance with the, with the muscular layers in the various locations and what moves when your arm moves. And if we incorporate that into, into considerations about device effectiveness, then, then we're really looking at a two-thirds failure rate um, as soon as we try and move a patient that's been decompressed and potential reaccumulation of that tension pneumothorax as opposed to at the axillary line, a much more stable um, device. So question for both of you, and maybe we'll start with Dan. Um, do you see the axillary placement of the needle overtaking and uh, becoming the standard of care? Do you, do, you, do you foresee a future edition of ATLS uh, instructing in the axilla instead of the second intercostal space? And if so, how quickly do you think that change might happen? Uh, I think we're going to move first and foremost to uh, equally effective alternative site, as Travis mentioned. and. I don't know if we're going to go in so far as overtaking completely. There may be some verbiage that says preferable over time, but I still think at this point in time with the, the eight centimeter needle, uh, first and foremost addresses the chest wall thickness issue. Most of the studies that talk about chest wall thickness between or at the secondary space that were concerning uh, really the depth, the depth at the chest wall there was uh, only 4.9 centimeters. That's why the 5-centimeter needle didn't really uh, make the mark there. Um, so the 8-centimeter needle addressed that issue. So I think um, then it comes down to ease or comfort level. So uh, you still have a large portion of pre-hospital providers, both military and civilian, who are very comfortable using the second interspace, as well as uh, medical providers. Uh, so I don't think it's going to completely overtake it. I think first and foremost we'll see a, an uh, equally effective, uh, uh, at least maybe in the first uh, few years or of, of uh, as we go through ATLS and PHTLS uh, change. And that's how, I think that's how TCCC uh, addresses the issue at this point in time. 
So I actually think we're going to see uh, more rapid change than that, and I think that within the next year or so, we're going to see some recommendations come out for um, for preferential use of the axillary location. So I guess that sort of begs the question, and I'll ask all three of you, and uh, start with Travis. Um, you, you're in the field, you know, you're driving along, you see a car crash or whatever it may be, and boom, there's a patient in front of you that you have diagnosed with attention pneumothorax, and you just so happen to have a uh, eight centimeter angiocatheter in your hands. Where are you going to put it, axilla or anterior axillary line? Axilla, and in fact, uh, now in the trauma bay, uh, that's what I have the residents do when I'm supervising them. Dan? Um, I would do axilla, actually. I, I carry the kit in my car and ready to go. Matt, what about you? Uh, I'd put it either place. I think I would use the axilla preferentially if you have access to it. You know, the other factor we have to remember is we're not going to get rid of second intercostal space, especially for the military, because in the field, these guys have their body armor on, and, and it can be very tough to get to that axilla quickly. But I, I think the other issue, and, and I think Dan and Travis have also both looked at this, is this assumption that this 60% published failure rate is because the catheter isn't long enough. And if we just had a long enough catheter that got in the chest, we would be good. <clears throat> and I think the recent literature has shown even that is false when we're talking about the 14-gauge angiocatheters. So, so, Travis, maybe you could talk about that in terms of the device. And, and the failure rate of even a perfectly placed 14-gauge little flimsy angiocast. Sure. Um, I think the failure rate is really multifactorial because there's a lot of reasons why these devices fail. They may not enter the chest wall. They may either because they're not long enough or because they skive. They may become kinked. They may be placed and enter a... Uh, either the mediastinum or, or enter lung tissue. Um, they may become occluded with blood, um, or they may um, not be of a sufficient caliber to compensate for whatever air leak is present. And I think that that may be one of the most important factors. And, and I, I, think, uh, I think, Matt, you did a study a few years ago that showed that um, because – 14-gauge is, is a pretty small caliber, and to, to cause attention pneumothorax, the assumption is that there's a, a pretty significant injury to, to either um, lung parenchyma or the bronchial tree, and so that air leak is going to be pretty profound. And we all know when we've put chest tubes in and seen that massive bubbling, trying to push that through a little tiny straw is, 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 going, to be, um, is going to be pretty difficult. And so... When we look at ways to mitigate the fail, that extremely high unacceptable failure rate, I think there's, there's a variety of factors that have been um, recommended. One, as we talked about, was longer catheters. Two is potentially stiffer catheters so they don't kink or stiffer um, devices. Uh, and three is, which I think is probably the most important of these, is probably larger caliber in order to rapidly decompress that, that thoracic space and then maintain an adequate decompression in the face of, a, of an air leak. And, and our lab um, 
recently did a study where we looked at four devices. We compared the 14-gauge angiocatheter to a 10-gauge angiocatheter, a 3-millimeter laparoscopic trocar, and then a, uh, a varus needle that's been designed for thoracic decompression. And what we found was that really the larger caliber devices, the, the laparoscopic trocar and the, uh, and the 10-gauge angiocatheter performed substantially better um, in rapidly decompressing the pneumothorax and then maintaining that, that tension-free physiology. Matt, do you want to comment a little bit? I know you have a lot of experience in this field as well, doing uh, different studies. Yeah, and, and I, th I think Travis, Travis has summed it up perfectly. You know, this, this assumption that if you're just in the, the chest cavity, you know, a functional length, you're good. Boy, that's the thing we should really be teaching our medics. If you're using a 14-gauge angiocatheter, this device was designed to be an IV. It, it's amazing to me that we're treating a relatively common life-threatening pathology with a device that was made for something completely different. Uh, so, so we did the study Travis mentioned, perfectly placed 14-gauge angiocast and an anesthetized pig, not moving them, not transporting them, and the failure rate to relieve tension was about 30, 33%. And then we also did runs of pushing them to peak pulseless uh, electrical activity arrest. And the failure rate to relieve that and restore rhythm was over 50%. Whereas using something like a 5-millimeter trocar or, or as Travis did with those other devices, it's about 100%. They'll, they'll restore a rhythm from PEA. They'll relieve the tension pneumothorax. So, so, so I think we really need to, we need some better devices and, and we need to stop the focus on just if it's in the chest cavity. Because these things, they kink very easily. They get a little bit of blood or a piece of tissue in them, and they stop working. So, so, and if a different device isn't available, I would tell the medics, if you put an initial needle in and you get a rush of air and that was a tension pneumothorax, I would tell them, put at least two more in. Because guaranteed, one or two of those is going to fail as you move the patient. So do you think... Um I've seen uh, I've seen some of these uh, newer devices that are sort of a selling your technique where you uh, you know you needle wire and then dilator and then there's a small bore you know we, I sort of think of the small bore chest tubes. Do you think that uh, we're moving more towards deploying that type of device in the pre-hospital environment? Maybe uh, Dan, maybe you comment first. Um, I think that's a great potential. I think there might be certain units that are more apropos to do that. Maybe a special forces medic uh, is uh, maybe the first group that might be able to use something like that, to advance, uh, an advanced unit. I would find that just personally very hard to see my uh, the, the trainees that come through here. Uh, we, we have a hard enough time getting them to perfectly or sufficiently place the uh, the needle decompressions with the angiocatheters. I think that's uh, first and foremost an issue. So moving on to a more technically challenging device uh, in in the pre-hospital realm uh, could be quite quite an issue. So I think it all has to come down to speed and ease of use. Uh, uh, that's why the tourniquet is, is sort of useful and successful in the hemorrhage control. It's just, it's a very easy-to-use device. Um, and I think the, the angiocatheter, while it's maybe not meant for uh, 
what we're using it for in this situation is, again, ease of use, release of the air. So while these other devices are more durable and whatnot, uh, I just don't – I'm not so sure we're at the at that uh, um, level of training uh, for the people that might be using them, at least at this point in time. Matt, do you have any other questions? Uh, yeah, I was going to say I, I, I agree 100% with Dan in terms of something like a, you know, a device that needs a Selinger technique, a place in a wire, that's not going to work in the field. But I, I disagree that we should still be, that, that there's no other devices that we don't have that are, that can be used reliably and safely. And, and I think the, I think a device that's similar to a laparoscopic trocar, because those were designed to be put into a body cavity without injuring underlying structures, so, so putting that in, and it's simple. It's a one shot. It's similar to placing a needle. You know, it takes a little more force. And, and again, our our study used a five millimeter one. Travis used a three millimeter, which I think I think that's probably the more ideal device, which would just then need to be modified, uh, obviously to be lower profile and, and ease of use for placement. So, so, so I think we we definitely need a new device that does not fail as reliably as the NJ catheters do. I, I agree with Matt wholeheartedly. Um, I'm not sure even that, that what Matt describes is even going to be required um, because when we looked at the 10-gauge angiocatheter, it had such a, it had such a high uh, efficacy and uses the exact same, same technique as the 14-gauge as the that that may be a cost-effective and realistic alternative um, because of the success rates for, for decompression of, of tension with the 10-gauge angiocatheters were, were 90% and 100% rescue from PEA compared to, to 74% with the 14-gauge for, or I'm sorry, 74% um, success rate. So, uh, so a 26% failure rate with, with tension and a 50% failure rate with uh, with PEA, and so I think that that using a, a device that's the same as what we're using now, but just a little bit bigger, may be the most realistic um, alternative for for rapid fielding across the civilian and military settings. Well, uh, Dan, one other thing I thought was really interesting about your paper was the uh, the sort of post placement survey that you did, and you asked these. Uh, uh, men and women, how comfortable they felt and whether or not they liked the technique. Um, I thought that was a real interesting angle to take with this and, and was surprised actually at how many of them were uh, much more satisfied and felt more comfortable with the axillary placement. Do you think that was just a product of, of their own initial uncertainty or was that really sort of the hands-on approach? I mean, in other words, if I if I, if I I address a group of people who are learning this, do I have to have that hands-on component to convince them, or do you think that the uh, sort of didactic theoretical is enough? Um, I, I think in this situation, we took them, we showed them an alternative. It was something new, and it, it was just so it, – it seemed easier to them, and they just jumped on it. I think that was a, a large portion of it where they, they came in, they felt some sense of struggle, uh, more or less with that second inner space, and again, trying to identify that mid clavicular line, identify that second inner space, march it out, and actually place it. If you had some prior experience with it or some, you know, prior knowledge, a lot of the 
then when they come in here and say, well, my chief does it this way. They showed me this, you know, tip or trick, and that's how I did it, and they did it, and they showed me. And they're pretty confident in their way of doing it, or they've had that experience. They're pretty set in their way. They're not going to be the ones who change. But the ones who come in here, who you're trying to show them that second inner space and, you know, find the mid-circular line, uh, I teach them how to find the maneuverium, the junction with the, the angle of Louis, march over, and um, that's your second inner space and pop in, uh, that to them is a lot more complicated or so to say, or maybe not a, I'm not a good enough teacher to do it, but as opposed to finding that fifth inner space, it's just a, almost like a wider landing area for them. Uh, that seems a lot easier for them, and they just jumped on it and gravitated towards it as a lot easier, plus it was a little bit more novel. Uh, hey, here's an easier alternative, and I think we almost sell it to them that way. Um, I say, hey, this is a quicker, easier way for you to do it. And, uh, you know, if we sell it to them that way, they almost jumped on it that way, too. So, Well, I happen to know for a fact that you are an amazing teacher. In fact, I think award-winning is the right word to use, uh, Dan. So um, I, wouldn't, uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't disparage your own teaching skills. Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> well, uh, it's been a great discussion. Um, Matt, do you have any other questions that you'd like to ask? Uh, actually, I'll just ask all three of you, and this is a hypothetical unless you have some experience. So, Dan, you guys trained medics. Mm -hmm. So, if you if you took your, let's say, our standard medics or corpsmen, mm -hmm. told them, and just told them, place a needle thoracostomy now, and then you took, say, your interns and junior residents, and without any, said, place a needle thoracostomy now, which group do you think would be better at it with no with no further instruction? Um, just by saying to go do it, I would I would hang my hat on my Navy corpsman. <laughs> okay, Travis? I would have to agree. I think uh, that the training that these, these young guys receive in uh, in field care is, is, is very good and, and very deliberate, um, whereas I think sometimes our, our training of our, of our trainees for for some of these more what would be considered pre-hospital interventions is uh, is less adequate, and um, I would I would put my money on on the on the corpsman or medic. Okay, good. That 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 was my feeling too, and, and experienced a little bit of that in the lab when you know we said put these in with some of the junior residents. Okay, so so I think another another group we probably have to focus on familiarizing and training. Yeah, that's kind of uh that's kind of we should kind of be ashamed that we've we haven't done as good a job of teaching our own residents in my opinion. If that if that is in fact a true statement. Of course it's true. I said it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh thank you both for joining us today. This has been a great discussion and I think uh, you know it's it's amazing to me how much this topic comes up. It, when we do the skill station at ATLS, it seems like the most questions that we get are about Needle decompression. When do I do it? Where do I do it? How do I do it? And um, I think uh, I think pushing the science forward and, and and making the technique maybe a little simpler and safer is is very commendable work. So congratulations, Dan, on getting this project done and published and presented and all the work that goes into all that and your co-authors as well. Thank you. And uh, uh, thanks thanks Travis for doing the review and for all your work uh, also in this field and for the. Uh, the work that you do with East as well. No, that was fun. Thanks for doing it.
And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.